I'm Father Mitch Packwa, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition. I want to especially wish all of you a happy 4th of July, the United States Independence Day. Now, we weren't totally independent yet. We declared it on our side. It took the Americans another seven years to convince the British uh, that were occupying the colonies to accept our independence, but that was a big beginning. And it was also a big beginning because the principles of freedom and dignity rooted in God's gift to each person had been laid down as the principle for the foundation. And it's good also for us to know that the idea that everybody has the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as a gift from the Creator, as well as the right that when a leader becomes oppressive, that you can separate from that leader or king in our case, that those principles had actually been set out by St. Robert Bellarmine. He was debating a Protestant who was a theologian for King James I, the famous King James of the King James Bible. And King James and his theologian believed in the divine right of kings and that God put a king in power, therefore everybody had to obey the king or else they were disobeying God. St. Robert Bellarmine debated them in print and said that's not the case, that when the king is unjust, then the subjects have the right to overthrow the king. And even though Thomas Jefferson did not mention St. Robert Bellarmine's name, he had read that debate. It was in his library. And he has a number of direct quotes from St. Robert Bellarmine in our U.S. Declaration of Independence, including the phrases I mentioned. So there's also that Catholic background to our independence and more importantly to its principles. And this is something that all of us should pray and struggle to make sure that we keep those principles of the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as a gift from God. Now, we are still going to continue on with that which is more basic than even the Declaration of Independence, namely, sacred revelation. And that revelation is in scripture and in tradition. So we'd love to have you part of our program by sending us your questions or comments by email, writing to scriptureandtradition at ewtn.com. Now, today we are going to continue from last week, and we will look at how central the Holy Eucharist is to our Christian faith and how our Lord Jesus Christ 
united his apostles to himself at the Last Supper, and he gave them a special chair, share in his priestly action. This is a very important thing. So, let's start off. First of all, oh, by the way, I should mention that we are still going through my book, Wheat and Tares, Restoring the Moral Vision of a Scandalized Church. You can still get that at EWTN's Religious Catalog. Just go to EWTNRC.com where it is item number 81098. 81098. So, uh, we'll get to uh, Luke 22, verses 19 and 20, which presents the institution of of the Holy Eucharist during the Last Supper. Now, this is a priestly action by Christ. It is called a sacrifice. And that, for instance, in a very early epistle, the first epistle to the Corinthians, which was written at the latest uh, 53 uh, AD, so 53, maybe 54, but uh, right in that period when St. Paul is living in Ephesus. And he writes about our Lord's Paschal sacrifice, that is, his Passover sacrifice. So that's one of the things going on there. And one of the important actions, besides instituting the Eucharist, our Lord makes his apostles part of his priesthood. He gives them a share. And this is a very important thing. Now, where does he do that? It's in the words, do this in remembrance of me. Now, for some Catholics, you see them uh, misunderstand this when it says, do this in remembrance of me, that they think this is just an act of recollecting the past, remembering the past. This is something Jesus do, and we remember it. And that is a false understanding of what our Lord meant by the words, do this in remembrance of me. Uh, and some priests actually change our Lord's words in order to make him fit their theology of remembering. So they'll sometimes say, and I've heard this, they'll say, when you do this, remember me. I've heard that a couple of times over the years, more than a couple. When you do this, remember me. That's not what our Lord said. And words have meaning. You can't just change somebody else's words. Uh, you have to take a look at what was actually said. Uh, if you say that when you do this, remember me, then it makes the priest simply a leader in helping everybody else to recall some past event at the Last Supper. And that means that both the dignity of the Holy Eucharist and the dignity of the priest is diminished 
to merely being something that recalls the past. That's not what our Lord intended. And we don't teach that in the Catholic Church. And it's kind of an irony that when they say uh, this, do this and, uh, and remember me, or when you do this, remember me, it makes them forget the dignity Christ bestowed in the, his real presence, in the sacrificial nature of the Eucharist, and in the dignity of the priesthood. They talk about remembering, but actually they use it to help forget what Christ meant. So as he does it, let's take a look at Luke's words. You know how St. Luke put it on paper in Luke 22, 19 to 20. And Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after the supper, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. So these are Christ's words. First thing to keep in mind, our Lord is speaking a transformative word. We have to understand the theology of words. A lot of times in regular English, we'll say, oh, that's just words. I want action. That may be true for a lot of people. And we have a lot of people with responsibility in politics and business and other areas where we don't want them just to say they're going to do something and not act. And that's understandable. But this is God made flesh who is speaking here. And in fact, when we look back at the Gospel of St. John, chapter 1, Verse 1 and 3, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. This is key that it's part of Christ's very nature to describe Himself as the Word of God. And this helps to show that he is distinct from the Father. The Father is the speaker. Jesus is the word that he spoke. And that's, uh, and because the speaker, God the Father, is infinite, the word he speaks, God the Son, is infinite. There's no limit to him. And so that is a very important part. And this is something that we really want to understand because if you notice at the creation in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we read, God said, let there be light. Let there be, God said, let there be the firmament. God said, let there be the waters above and below. God said, 
let there be the lights in the sky. God said, let the dry land appear. All of these creatures come into being by God speaking them into existence. So that's why St. John writes, in the beginning was the Word, and without him nothing was made. Everything was made through the Word. He is bringing together his understanding of Jesus as the Word of God and the fact that in Genesis, God creates by his Word. And so therefore, when our Lord Jesus speaks to the bread and says, this is my body, his words are just as creative as they were at the beginning of time, when through his word, everything came into being. That his word is not mere words and just talk. God's word is powerful and it makes everything that exists come into being. If he can make all of the creation through his word, then he can also transform bread and wine into his body and blood through his word. Think about that, meditate on that. His word brought about creation, and now at the Holy Eucharist, his word brings about a new creation in the Eucharist. And he, he is truly present, body, blood, soul, and divinity. Now, we also see in the Gospel of St. Matthew that he adds something very important when he says, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That this sacrament of the Holy Eucharist is poured out for the many, that is, the many who have faith in Christ. It's not for all. There was a slight mistranslation in the Mass when they said for, uh, this is for all. It really does say for many. And our Lord wants this to be for the many who have faith in Him. And that it is for the forgiveness of sins. Not only for a comforting sense, it's for forgiveness. This is another important element. We also see that our Lord taught that his body and blood are absolutely necessary for eternal life. So in John 6, 53 to 57, we read, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I'll raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me 
will live because of me. This is a very important part of why the Eucharist is so necessary. It's not just something, it'd be, it'd be nice if you came to Mass. No, this is about receiving that which is necessary, the body and blood of Christ. Then we also see that he identifies the cup of wine as, quote, the new covenant in my blood. When he calls it the new covenant, he is indicating a new beginning that had been prophesied in the Old Testament. Where does this all come from? It's very important to see that it comes, first of all, from Exodus 24, verse 8, where we read, and Moses took the blood, and this is blood from 12 bulls, one bull from each tribe of Israel. Moses took the blood and threw it upon the people. He sprinkled it with a hyssop branch and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accord with all these words. So that's what he is using, the blood of the covenant. And Israel had made a covenant. Now, the covenant at Mount Sinai was conditional. With Abraham, it was unconditional. But at Mount Sinai, it was a conditional covenant that I will be your God and you will be my people if you obey my commandments. And Moses, especially in the book of Deuteronomy, keeps warning them, don't swerve to the right or to the left but go straight in the commandments of God. Or else, and there are a couple chapters, uh, 26 and 27, that if you break the law, you will be driven out of the country. That to break the law means to break the covenant. And if you persist, the covenant will be over. Well, the, the sad part of the history of Israel is that they did persist. And if you read the first and second book of Samuel, first and second book of Kings, you see in the history of Israel that they broke the law of God many, many times. That is why um, the, uh, the prophets had declared the covenant to be broken. In Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 9, it says, Again, the Lord said to me, there is a revolt among the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and they have turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers who refused to hear my words. They have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers. Similarly, in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 59. Yea, thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant. That's what they did. Now, both of these prophets, by the way, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, are priests. And both of them also 
are, are they're, they're criticizing, they're saying you broke the covenant. But the good news about them is they did not leave it there. And we're going to take a little break. We'll come back and take a look. What was the other part of the message of Jeremiah and Ezekiel? So stay with us and we'll be able to explain that to you in a second. topic just want to remind you that in 2023 EWTN family celebration this will be on Saturday August 26th right here in Birmingham Alabama at the Birmingham Jefferson Convention Complex if you can join us we'd love to have you here please go to EWTN.com slash family celebration or you can also call. The number is 1-800-447-3986. 1-800-447-3986. You can register for this free event. We just need to know that you're coming so that we'll have room for you. Okay? So, glad to have you there. All right. Let's get back to our topic at hand. We were talking about how our Lord had said that this is the blood of the covenant. Uh, and in one, one of the versions of the Last Supper says, this is the blood of the new and everlasting covenant and uh, that has been poured out for you. And that the word, I, I forgot to mention this, the word that our Lord uses for poured out in Greek is encheo. And in the Greek translation of Exodus, they use the same verb for when Moses put, puts the blood on the people, says this is the blood of the covenant, and he sprinkles the people. He used the same word, encheo, uh, as here. Then I mentioned how both Jeremiah in 11, 9 uh, and, uh, and 10, and then Ezekiel 16, verse 59, the Lord God declared through those two priest prophets that the covenant had been broken. The people sinned so thoroughly, the covenant was now broken. But I said there was more to their message the prophets would speak a harsh word to the people of Israel, but they also were told by the Lord to speak a word of hope. So we see in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, 
when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That's in Jeremiah 31. So he promises that though the old covenant is broken, there will be a new covenant. And then in Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 26, he's, he promises, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will bless them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forever. So here we see Ezekiel also promising that there'll be a new covenant and a new and everlasting covenant, which is what our Lord also says that he's establishing a new and everlasting covenant. So this is a very important passage. There is no place in the Old Testament where any prophet, king, or sage says, uh, we've got the covenant renewed. None of the rabbis had made that decree that the covenant was broken, but nobody said that it was renewed, except Jesus Christ at the Last Supper. He said it is renewed. This is the new and everlasting covenant. And this is none of the rabbis talk about it. Nothing in the Mishnah, nothing in the Talmud or any other Jewish literature speaks about the renewal of the covenant. But Jesus does speak about the new covenant. And in this way, he is pointing to the fulfillment of the prophecy made by Ezekiel and Jeremiah that the Lord God would give a new covenant. This is very, very important. And then I want to give uh, another part of this, these words of institution. I already mentioned the words of the institution. It says, uh, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That's in Luke 22, verse 19. But we also see in Paul, in 1 Corinthians 11:25, in the same way also after the cup, after supper, uh, in the same way also the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And there are two things to keep in mind. As many of you would know, if you know more than one language, the verb meaning to do in most languages has a wide variety of meanings. It means to do, sometimes it means to make, and even within a language, it has a variety of nuances of how you use the verb do. Well, this is something that's true here as well. In these passages in Luke 22, verse 19, and 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five, 25, 
we see that the verb do is a plural and it's an imperative. It's, it's Christ telling this group of apostles, not one or the other, but in Hebrew and in Greek, they had a U plural form of the verbs. And that's what our Lord employs here. So it's y'all do, and it's a command to everybody present to do this in remembrance of me. And one of the meanings of the verb do in Hebrew is that it means to offer a sacrifice. This is something I go into a lot of detail and give lots of passages in um, my book uh, called The Eucharist, A Bible Study for Catholics. But we see, for instance, in Exodus chapter 10, verse 25, that the verb do means to offer sacrifice. You'll see in the Hebrew that the, the English says, um, uh, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. The verb there that we may do is the Hebrew asinu. And in the Greek, it's poiesomen, we may do. And it means so that we may offer sacrifice. That's why the English translates it that way. St. Jerome translated it that way in Latin as offeramus. Um, and even in the Revised Standard Version and the King James Version, it's translated correctly as to sacrifice. That's what it means. And so when our Lord is saying, do this, he is telling them to sacrifice it. And this is key because what distinguishes a priest from a minister of the word is that a priest offers sacrifice. The letter to the Hebrews has a whole teaching about that. That's what makes someone a priest. Christ is a priest because he sacrifices himself. Those of us who are ordained to the priesthood are to join with him and offer Christ in the holy sacrifice of the mass. And this is a very important thing. And then we say, well, are you sure that it means to sacrifice something? Well, that becomes more clear when you see it with the word in remembrance of me. How is remembrance used in the Old Testament? And it's sometimes translated as memorial or as remembrance, but it occurs in the book of Leviticus in a number of places. Leviticus 2 verse 1, Leviticus 2 verse 16, Leviticus 5 verse 12 and 26, and Leviticus 24 verse 7. And what's going on in those passages? It refers to a type of cereal offering. We also see in Numbers chapter 5 verse 18, it speaks about the cereal offering of remembrance. 
That's why you, you can't change this uh, translation. It's do this in remembrance of me. Remembrance is a type of sacrifice. You see that again in Numbers chapter 10, verse 10. On the day of your gladness also and at your appointed feast and at the beginnings of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. They shall serve you for remembrance before your God. I am the Lord your God. So that remembrance refers to a type of sacrifice. Also in the book of Chronicles, 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 4. Moreover, he appointed certain of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord God of Israel. The word to invoke is actually the Hebrew word lehazkir. The hazkir means to cause to remember. Zakar is to offer. Hazkir means cause to remember. But it's talking about invoking God during a sacrifice. And also in Psalm 38, which is called a Psalm of David for the memorial or remembrance sacrifice. Psalm 70 also has this, which speaks of a Psalm of David for the memorial offering. This remembrance or memorial, again and again, as a matter of fact, in the 10 uses of the word in the Bible, nine out of 10 refer to a type of sacrifice. Once it means to recall the past, and that's in the book of Wisdom, chapter 16. But the other times, it simply means to offer a sacrifice. It's a type of sacrifice. Why is that important? Because as I said, the word do has the meaning of offer a sacrifice. But then when you add a sacrificial term, remembrance, then you have a double way of seeing that our Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ is telling his apostles and commissioning them to offer this memorial sacrifice. This is my memorial sacrifice. In Numbers and Leviticus, it speaks of the memorial sacrifices of the Old Testament. Christ, who begins this new and everlasting covenant, has his own memorial sacrifice, and his priests are ordained at the Last Supper with that command, do this in remembrance of me. This is the, the order he gives, and we understand that by saying, do this in remembrance of me, our Lord Jesus is giving us the sacrament of the priesthood. He is making them his priests. This is a very, very important element. And especially since we are dealing with the issue in this book about the priest abuse scandal, something that still comes up as a shameful thing every so often. It's important for us to understand that Christ is ordaining his priests to offer sacrifice 
and to be united with him in offering that, his sacrifice, his memorial sacrifice or remembrance sacrifice. He is reminding us of that and giving that as a gift and that we priests have to remember this is the dignity to which we are called and we have to live in line with that dignity. Now, we're going to stop there. Next week, we will continue reflecting a bit more about, you know, what's the difference between the priests of the New Covenant and the priests of the Old Covenant. That's a whole other topic. But we, I think, we'll leave it here for now that this is part of what we have to discuss at this point. Okay? All right. Let's now take a look at some of your questions and emails. First one we have is from someone named Richard. He says, Father Mitch, God created Adam and Eve and their two children, Cain and Abel. Cain killed Abel, leaving Adam, Eve, and Cain. Over time, Cain went on his own, and Adam and Eve had more children. Biblically, we are all descendants of Adam and Eve. If that's the case, are we not the product of incestuous consanguinity lineage since procreation was established by first parents, Adam and Eve? Richard. Well, Richard, it's not only that we are dealing with something that is in the Bible, but we are also dealing with biology. In fact, one of the things that the genome pro, uh, project has discovered is that the whole human race goes back to a change in the uh, genetics of a single woman. One individual woman had a change in her genetics and she has passed on that genetic chain uh, change to all of her descendants. The reason they point out the woman is that it's easier to follow the uh, mother's uh, DNA than it is the father's. So they can say more easily that everybody in the whole world goes back, on the and this is on the basis of science, that everybody goes back to an individual woman and that our DNA is characterized by uh, as belonging to her. So this is a, a very important discovery and therefore all of us are related, the whole human race. So hopefully um, you can cope with that, uh, Richard, but that's not only what the scripture says, it is what science points out as well. All right, let's take a break and we'll be back in just a couple of minutes with some more of your questions. Please stay with us.
right, welcome back. Uh, let's take another email here. This one is from Vivian. Father Mitch, I've heard it said that a mass uh, I have, that I have said for the living is worth a thousand after they're dead. Is the same true for rosaries said for the living? Also, since Protestants don't believe in praying for the dead, does it stand to reason their dead will spend more time in purgatory since their family and friends are not praying for them? Vivian. Well, first of all, Vivian, um, I've never seen uh, stated in any principle of theology that a mass for the living is worth a thousand for the dead. I don't know where that comes from and what they mean by that. Uh, so I, I don't know anything about that. And um, I don't, I, I can't comment on something like that. Uh, and that would apply to, to the rosary. I would, you know, and I do offer masses for the living and for the dead. I want to pray for them. I don't know the value of one over the other when it comes to whether the person is alive or dead. Uh, I just don't, I never heard such a thing. So I wouldn't push that too far. Um, and that would also deal with, you know, Protestants. I, I think that, you know, we are not the ones who need to worry about the accounting of merit uh, for anybody, whether Catholic or Protestant. That's ultimately going to be God's most just and most merciful call. He's going to be both infinitely just and infinitely merciful. So I leave that to him. I don't worry about it, but I still pray for the living and I pray for the dead on a regular basis. This is a part of my prayer. So, um, and, and I don't worry about the, the value. I'll let God deal with that. Um, I'm just here to keep praying for the dead. And hopefully if I'm praying for the dead now, they'll someday pray for me after I die. But don't worry about the value, weight on either one. Then we have an email from Helen. She says, Dear Father Mitch, I would like to understand more about the covering of the head for women. I don't like wearing the veil. I did back in the 60s, but I'm older now and want to know how to understand more about this. God bless Helen. Well, Helen, um, there is, St. Paul talked about covering women's heads. This was very much part of his culture. It had been a part of many cultures for many, many centuries. And this is a very ancient custom. But in the modern world, it doesn't have exactly the same meaning. Oftentimes, it was a way to indicate whether somebody was married or unmarried. If also could mean that if a woman was not a virtuous woman, she was not allowed to wear the veil. The veil was an indication of a virtuous woman. So that was 
some of the ancient background. Now, this was made an option back in the 1960s. Before the 60s, women, I remember my mother and my sister, would you know make sure they had at least a little chapel veil uh, when they went to church. Uh, that's been made optional. My mother actually was glad for that because she said sometimes people are spending so much money on fancy hats that you know it's no longer about modesty but becomes showing off. And that was one of her reflections. I had I kept quiet, um, but I sort of thought I. I really think it's pretty when women wear pretty hats, but you know, that's my taste. Um, as far as you, the, the present use of it, it's, it's coming back a bit among many people. It's part of people taking an attitude in favor of modesty because we live in a society that is not very modest, and sometimes it's grossly immodest. If you remember last month, uh, there were uh, gay pride parades where some people stripped themselves completely naked. Um, <laughs> I heard one man comment when he saw photographs of some of these men walking down the street naked. He said, you know, I'll never eat cottage cheese again. Uh, apparently, they're, they had a lot of wrinkles. Um, <laughs> I didn't see it. I don't think I want to. But that's immodest. Or we have uh, other places where people have large groups of people bicycling through a city completely naked. You know, that's not modest. And in the face of that immodesty, People are putting on a veil to be a sign of modesty. But it's just their way of expressing it. It's not something the church requires. It's an option, but it's an option that many people choose because they want to be a sign of modesty in a very immodest society. So that's what's going on. Again, sometimes I'm frankly quite surprised. I just have to look at the floor when I'm in the airport. Some people dress in little pants that are so skimpy that uh, oftentimes undergarments are larger than some of the uh, shorts people are wearing. We should be modest in general, uh, and that's what they're trying to seek, okay? And then from Sally, we have another question. Father Mitch, I was wondering if you can answer a question I have. I wanted to know, is it a requirement that you believe Jesus is the Son of God and believing that only through Him can you be saved and avoid hell? Or does Jesus dying for all of us cover that for people automatically, whether they believe that or not, but live according to the Beatitudes? I know it is a nice hope to think that we are all covered by Jesus' gift beyond hoping. Is it biblically sound to say you can only reach the Father through Jesus? Sally. Well, first of all, Sally, what does our Lord Jesus say? In John 14, verse 6, no one comes to the Father except through me. And when Peter and John are put on trial in Acts of the Apostles, they say there is no other name by which people can be saved. 
So this, it's necessary because Jesus is infinite God who died on the cross for the sins of the world. Now, there is a recognition in the church and I think in the Gospels that there are a lot of people who don't know anything about Christ. If there are people who hear about Christ and then refuse to follow him or hate him, as many people do, they hate Christ, they hate the church, and they will be held culpable for rejecting Christ and rejecting the church. But it, there are also many millions, and in fact, a couple of billion people who never have a chance to even hear about Christ. Some countries forbid the importation and sale of the New Testament. You cannot in their country. That's not the fault of the people. And our Lord will judge them the way we see he judges in chapter 25 of Matthew, verse 31 and following. Whatever you do to the least of my brethren, you do to me. Now, you're still being saved through Jesus because whatever you do, you do to Jesus. And if you are helping out the poor and being kind to them, you're helping Jesus. If you are harming the poor, if you are aborting babies, you are doing that to Jesus. If you are murdering people on the street, that's what you're doing to Jesus. So they'll be if they don't know anything about Christ, he'll judge them that way. But they will be judged, all, as all of us will. So that's very important. Then we have another email from Patricia. My question about living wills and advanced directives. I understand the Catholic Church allows the injections of morphine and other pain medications for hospice patients, and that's true, that's right. Is there a way to limit the amount of medication injected in order not to fall into too dull a state of mind? I want to be alert enough to pray and fight demonic attacks. In my case, how should I prepare an advanced directive? Patricia from New Jersey. Patricia, I would talk to your uh, physician or medical uh, expert in your life. Tell them, no, that's what I want. I want to be able to pray if I get to that point. Ask them, what do I need to do about limiting, you know, how much morphine and painkillers I take? And, you know, uh, and then put that into your living will. But get their medical advice because, you know, I can't administer that and I don't know enough about that. So ask your, your uh, medical person in your life to take their that, okay? It'd be very important. And then we'll end up with one here from Timothy in San Francisco. Father Mitch, was John the Baptist not born in the area ruled by King Herod? Yes, he was. Just outside Jerusalem, in fact at the village of Ein Kerem. Since he was near the age of Jesus and within the range of those holy innocents ordered to be slaughtered by King Herod, how was he slay, saved as his parents did not go to Egypt? Timothy. Um, if you wish, Timothy, you can see 
in the Proto-Evangelion of James, they say that, yes, Herod was trying to kill John the Baptist too. Not because he was John the Baptist, he was just a baby. But he was among the children they were seeking to kill. And his mother was able to hide behind a rock and the soldiers didn't find him. But his father, Saint Zechariah, died at the hands of Herod's soldiers trying to distract them and protect John from being killed. So that's why Zechariah is also a saint. Uh, so that's what we have, that's as much as we have. And the Proto-Gospel of James was written around 125 AD. All right, well, may the Lord bless you. May the Lord bless the whole United States and all people who seek freedom and dignity from God the Creator. May God bless you all, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have a blessed and safe and delightful, happy Independence Day. And pray for our country. We also ask that you keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill, because we have a lot of bills to pay, and we depend solely on you. So thank you very much, and God bless.